In the following live session recording, Tony Neal, state missionary with Georgia Baptist Mission Board, discusses best practices, receipt, and protection of church contributions, part one. In this session, the listener will learn best practices when receiving and protecting contributions given to the church, ensuring funds received are accounted for and deposited intact and whole. This part one session will focus on contribution receipts, while part two will focus on protection of the church in dealing with contributions. Let's join Tony now. Okay, we're going to get started. Um, my name is Tony Neal. I'm a state missionary with Georgia Baptist Mission Board, helping churches with their financial administrative type questions and needs. Uh, I meet with the churches, I meet with associations, uh, and I do some big events that go around in certain areas to try to give updates every year. So uh, if there's any way I can serve you, uh, I'll be glad to. And I also wanted to say thank you for giving to the cooperative program. I don't know the size of any church in here, though, and I don't check when I go visit a church, so sometimes I'm surprised at how big one is, and sometimes I'm surprised at how small one is. Uh, but because of the churches working together cooperatively, that gives you a CPA on staff to help answer your questions and, and emails without charging you. If you had somebody uh, had to go to somebody to get it something done, I'm not allowed to do your paperwork, but I will uh, guide you if it's if, if you think you're if you're confident enough that you know most of it, you just have a question about a question on let's say the SS4 or the 941. I'll, I'll you tell me what line number and I can tell you you know basically based on what you're telling me what the answer would be. But I can't fill out the forms for you. So let me serve you in any way I can. But thank you because of the cooperative program I do exist. This ministry exists for a lot of our churches. That's the only access they have. I mean some of our small towns there's not a CPA even. They couldn't even go past the CPA. So thank you for that. Um, we are going to talk about receipts and protection of the church contributions, and, and we're going to try to talk about best practices. At any time, if I forget to say it, if you want to know, is that a legal requirement or a, or a best practice, and you want to talk about how, you, how it plays out for your church, because some churches are different. Some churches are big enough to do what I'm saying. Some churches are small enough that doing what I'm saying is difficult so that you may have a question about those things if you're not comfortable asking it between the sessions today i'm available uh to ask you know so identify if you don't want everybody else here and well we only have this many members and da 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 i'll be glad to help you that way as well so um first of all i want to just bring into a scriptural reference so as a treasurer or financial secretary or leader in your church uh, we try to do whatever we do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord giving thanks to God the Father through him what we do with finances of the church in protecting utilizing and so forth is a reflection of what we see as the as the, the gift and it's a, it actually is a reflection on the reputation of the church itself and how we view Christ I mean we need to do it as we're doing it for the Lord and most of the people that volunteer at church, at the treasurer and such, want to do it that way. But in general, a lot of the churches uh, don't have the opportunity or don't have the resources to put a lot of people towards that uh, role. So sometimes it makes it difficult, or if you're the treasurer here and you don't have to raise your hand, but if you got elected treasurer, 
the first time you found out you were treasurer or that you got elected, it may have been because you weren't in conference. <laughs> it may have been because you know a little bit about accounting and stuff and they think they can, it, it correlates, which it's not. Business world accounting is not the same as uh, church or nonprofit accounting. Um, for whatever reason, that you, it was handed off to you, and it may have, in all likelihood, literally, I just talked to an associational missionary that said they needed me to come down. One of the churches is asking to take it over. It's a mission church. Can you do our finances for a while at the association office? And they literally just brought a checkbook. There was nothing else, a checkbook. So they had been writing checks and just putting it in there, kept no file of any receipts, no, no anything else. And um, so you understand, you probably inherited it. So with that many, with you know, 3,000 plus Jordan Baptist churches, we have such a variety. When I do one of these trainings, I always say, okay, raise your hand if it's that, or if you don't feel comfortable, if you think everybody else is gonna say, oh, we're this too, they're too big, it's, I don't understand why, or if you think, oh, they're too small, so I don't want them to ask questions about me or know about our church, uh, you can ask me in, in private as well, or you can email me. So, but everything we do it should be done to be giving thanks. In our thanks to God, we do it because of who He is and the respect for Him. But also, we want to be a reflection so that everybody can see that we do it above reproach in a way that everybody can see that the church doesn't, and, and for whatever lack of the terminology, uh, that doesn't cut corners or uh, take assumptions or feel like they're able to do things because oh, they're the church. We don't have to do that. You want to do it the right way and the legal way. So the importance of accounting, accounting for the contributions is that the donors' re contribution records for union and reporting, you have to have an accurate accounting of that. If they're audited and you've made the mistake and there's a problem, the church can also get in trouble. So if you've overstated their contributions, then you've assisted them in underreporting their income. So if the if the person, the individual got audited, you are inviting the, the IRS into the church because you've done something by mistake, but you've done it in, incorrectly. So we need those contribution statements to be accurate. Plus, on the flip side, not the legal issue, but uh, for belief in the church. I mean, people uh, in the church have confidence in what's done if you do if you do their accurate contribution statements. And when people have confidence in the way the finances are done in the church, they tend to give more. Uh, unfortunately, we're looking at a, uh, a world where even the members of a church are only given 3.5% of their income, not anywhere near 10% on average. Uh, and truthfully, uh, people, we find that people that believe in what the church's budget is, believe in what the church is doing, and believe that the church is doing it accurately, they have confidence and they give they give more readily. I've literally see, seen people say, well, we send our money back to our own church because we don't know what's going on yet. And, and they wait and wait and wait to start contributing to that church. If you're not, a, if you're not uh, transparent and open about what's going on with the finances, it makes people suspicious in the same breath. If you mess up, if they give $100, let's say they can move into your area and they give $100 a week and they see that you mess it up, there's a good chance they may not give $100 a week next year. So we've got to be accurate with that. That's, that's to the benefit of helping build confidence, but also uh, when we send those contribution statements out, hopefully that's convicting to people that don't tithe. Hopefully they start looking at, well, wait a minute, 
I mean, what? This month that'd be two? And they, they start looking at their taxes and say, oh, I didn't get to itemize. Well, my contributions, what? Well, your contributions were usually a third of what they should have given. Generally, I mean, that, I'm just I'm speaking generally. You probably know people in your church and you're saying, no, no, such and such. But I'm saying, or I, I give this because of your treasury role. You know people give, but you don't necessarily have majority of the church giving at a 10% level. If we did, no church would have any trouble with the resource need. Uh, we would be able to keep 10,000 missionaries on the field in, in foreign countries, 10,000 missionaries in North America, because obviously we would double or triple the money, right? So in, in theory, if everybody's giving 3.5%, if people gave 10%, that would be more money to the cooperative program, more money to North American missions, and more money to the international missions. So. Um, we, we need to build that confidence. Uh, as, a, as a general rule, you have to follow the guidelines of a 501c3. And so that means handling the restrictive funds that come in or the general offering in the right way so that you can either not pay somebody to have a profit, per se, in the general fund or whatever, but in the designated funds, we got to handle those properly or we jeopardize our nonprofit status. So both of those things are important to keep our nonprofit status. Now, the 501c3 letter is available to all of our churches. If you're a Georgia Baptist Church, we've, we've done the, the umbrella letter for all of our churches. If you don't have a copy of that letter for your church, if you'll email me, we'll get you a copy. It doesn't save you on sales tax, okay? Unfortunately, in Georgia, churches pay sales tax even on Bibles. Um, but it, it helps you if you go to Sam's. They want to know that you're 501c3 before they'll put you on the list. So they want to see an IRS letter. It, it'll help you if you try to get software discounts. It'll help you if you go to Tennessee or Florida or somewhere to do a mission trip. Or if you take that letter, you can get a temporary exemption from sales tax. And in Florida, that's a big deal if you're going down there and staying in a hotel. So if you're a group going down to stay in a hotel or, or a place, you're not paying that big tax. Uh, so you want to do that. Also taking care of those things uh, to get the 501c3. It, gives, it, you, it leaves also on the leadership a fiduciary responsibility and protection of those. Protection of uh, the investment of, are we taking it and putting the money aside for future use, such as building funds or, or so forth, or is the monies that are going out, are they expended on things that are legally allowed for a nonprofit to be doing? And for example, we talked about designated funds of benevolence last night. Does your benevolence fund have, is it, is it available to everyone or are we doing it the wrong way and just doing it for our members? Okay? You have to have an objective type plan that allows for everybody to be assisted through the benevolence. You can't just do it for the, and I hate to use this, but attorneys will use it, the country club, the members only. Okay? benevolence has to be available to help a, a wider indefinite charitable class as I described like yesterday uh, and then also we need to do things to protect it uh, fraud happens in the church you would be surprised at how many times this year I've had a call this year alone I've had more calls than in any one single year of the 15 years this year I've had more calls and actually substantiated fraud uh, that's purposeful intent to do something wrong, or not, not just a mistake, an unintentional mistake, purposeful in more churches this year than the last three years. This year has been unique 
Uh, I don't know why. Maybe people have started to find out that we can make some references and give them uh, some churches, uh, some church resources that they can go to a place. There's actually a couple of people I have that are fraud examiners that have actually saved churches thousands of dollars on the cost of if they had hired a CPA firm that had a fraud examiner so on and so forth. Uh, so there's a lady in and she's going to do the training in Statesboro, this training in Statesboro next week. Uh, she just couldn't come this week, but uh, Kimberly Moore, and uh, she did it for at least four churches this year, Southern Baptist churches. And uh, so four Georgia Baptist churches, and three out of the four have fraud um, in the last 12 months. Yes, ma'am? It depends on the church. She asked about how, how uh, fraud is handled. It really depends on the church. Unless you, you have somebody that, and, and for example, this is how Kimberly and I actually crossed paths. There was a church, and, and she was in that church. And the uh, financial secretary treasurer literally embezzled tax withholding for 12 years. The IRS didn't even send a letter for 12 years. And they had multiple employees. They actually had a church daycare, so it had 10 or so employees. They had staff. And, you know, she she is the one that discovered it. She, as a financial secretary, I mean, as a member of the finance team, as a financial secretary and uh, employee of a CPA firm, she started doing some investigation when the person was gone only because she was just filling in. She was helping make sure bills were paid and some other stuff, and it just became apparent that this person had done something illegal. Now, that's because the IRS finally sent a letter is why it first came to her attention. So, uh, but the IRS had not sent letters over time because they would have already put a lien on the church and their facilities. But um, she can tell you the horror stories as well as anybody, so I, I would, I'll stop there, but the, it took, they, the church went to the IRS and said, you know, please remove the penalties, and the penalties would only be removed if the person was prosecuted. Most churches prefer not to prosecute. So it really is up to the church to make that decision. I've heard churches say they wanted to forgive, and literally in one court case, the, the, the judge allowed them to forgive by saying, okay, I don't order restitution, but the person's still going to jail. They went and pled on pled for the, the person not to go to jail, to give them you know time, and the judge said, okay, if you want to forgive them, you can forgive the debt. And uh, talking about two hundred something thousand dollars of embezzlement, and and that's the way the IRS went away on the penalty. The penalties were actually almost as much with the interest and charges and penalties. There that was almost so they almost doubled their penalty. It was like five hundred thousand dollars almost. And so, uh, 300, 
most of the churches don't prosecute, and because they don't, the person moves on and does it somewhere else. And so, I, if they call me, the initial thing is, have you called law enforcement? And I try to encourage them. You need to file a police report. Uh, doesn't matter. You need to file a police report. I mean, the, most of the time, your insurance is going to require that if you're going to try to recover anything on a bond. Uh, but almost to the almost to the 90% range the church is trying to figure every way they can not to tell the church what happened the body they just the, it's the leadership wants to keep it quiet they want to either forgive and forget or set up a way to recover from this not letting everybody know because like I said that confidence they fear that you you reach that confidence and people are not going to give and so uh, to answer your question no because most of the churches even when I send them to like I've sent, I sent I usually send two names or three names and Kimberly's almost always on there because she will go all over the state to help a church and uh, she can do it remotely or she can just visit and get the information come back work on it and then come back one time so it's not like she has to spend nights in the hotel nights and nights and nights uh, but she saved thousands of dollars for them. But uh, when I send her to do that, a lot of times when, in the interview process, when she starts working with them and telling them that, you know, at minimum it's going to cost this, and they say, well, yeah, the CPA firm said it was going to be three times as much or two times as much or whatever. There's like, um, yeah, I think we want to do it. And she said, well, let me just go through a few more things. And when she asks them if they're willing to prosecute to almost 90% or more, well, do we have to do that? That's the first thing. Do we have to do that? They don't want. And she's saying, well, then why would you want to pay to see how much is gone if you're not going to do anything about it? So first, you need to decide what are what is our willingness to know or do anything about it. And most churches try to sweep it under the rug. There was a case up in uh, Tennessee. Seventy-something-year-old grandmother got put in jail for embezzling, and she borrowed initially the money to assist a grandchild with a surgery and then you know it just snowballed on her and she couldn't pay it back the church said she never asked for help she never even asked for help come to find out her daughter was doing it in another church so uh, which was a nearby county and everything else sometimes uh, if we would just open up and let people know yeah we could create a database of you know these events right now all you got is google searches and finding out embezzlements in the area or people in the, but i mean literally one of the ones kimberly did just this year i mean there were people trying to keep it out of the paper once it got in the paper that the lady embezzled people were commenting you know how they put their uh, messages out I mean they put the uh, news event out on the newspapers website and then they allow comments just like the church just like you know and so obviously that's why leadership wants it not to get out is because they don't want to lose people lose confidence and everybody knows that somebody did that in that small town at that church so we've got to do something about that and some of the things we can do with that is, is making sure right off the bat that we take the money in and take care of it protect it and uh, do the right things with it, utilize it properly. Uh, 
counting contributions and when you really need to count you know the monies uh, and try to deposit them immediately so uh, there's uh, a document that talks about handling your money here I've got stuff on our website there's actually in this book if you want if you download this book if you do get the copy of the financial guidebook you email me and get a copy of that there is documentation in it about how the relationships are for the counting team versus the treasurer and so forth. I mean, uh, there's a lot of things we, we uh, in smaller churches tend to think, well, this person's doing financial, we don't want everybody else to know what's going on financially. One person shouldn't be doing everything, okay? So I'm gonna lead down that path, give me some time, I'm gonna build that, but I, that's one of the things. Uh, we should also deposit whatever is collected in total. Don't pull out a payment back and forth. Okay, deposit all funds intact uh, or wholly. Uh, post the contributions in a timely manner, and then we need oversight and accountability. And a lot of our churches just in this part miss it altogether. They have one person that does it all. And, and I can tell you, I grew up in a church, and I'm not going to name the church because I don't. Because I think they might still be doing it, to be honest. So the lady goes up there with the bank bag at the end of the service, puts all the offering from the plates in the bank bag, zips it up, takes it out to her heart. Okay. And she's just as much at risk as the money in the in the church is. If somebody can make false accusations, especially it being a small enough church, somebody could say, Oh yeah, she says cash offerings last month was this. I put a hundred dollar bill in. They can damage her reputation. So she is just as much at risk as the other. Uh, so it's not good practice to put people in those positions where one person's doing everything. Uh, you need some oversight, you need accountability, just like this is like in our Christian walk. We do better when we have that brother or sister walking beside us, when we have that accountability. Uh, that's why you know small groups are so important, is, is that you can help build and, and talk about your struggles or have somebody that helps you, uh, you know, that's further along on the path of, of faith or somebody that's, that's behind that you can help pull along. We need that accountability in the same breath as we do. I mean, it, we also need that accountability in the financials. We need somebody overseeing each part and we need somebody else not doing everything. So people have their place and have their, it fits in a cog or a wheel the right way. So best practice or counting contributions is best to have four to six members on the counting team, okay? Not family. Now, a family can be on the counting team, but any given week, you only want one family member on the count that week. So if you have a husband and wife on the counting team, the husband only works or the wife only works, not both. Um, brothers, same thing, same, same kind of premise, all family members, you don't really want familiarity or relationships there uh, they and they really the people that are counting should not be involved in the day-to-day -day financial activity okay they need to total the amount of cash and the amount of checks list the total of designated contributions by fund and and I didn't put this in here but if there's not a designated fund they don't need to cash that check we talked about it like yesterday but I, I should have put it on this one as too on this uh, PowerPoint as well we don't uh, we don't cash a contribution for a designated fund that doesn't exist because they, if, if audited, they would not get credit for that. 
Secondly, if they donated to something that the church doesn't want to do, you've created a contract. Mm -hmm. So if you accept that check for water cooler fund, as I mentioned yesterday, if I wanted a water cooler in here, if you accept that check and it said water cooler fund for, for this Sunday school, room 240 Sunday school class, you say you're going to do it. But legally, you're not supposed to put it on their contribution statement, even though I gave it to the church and the church is using it for the church's use. The church as a body did not make the decision to accept donations for that. So designated fund has to be in advance. If they want to do that, then, you know, if they want to uh, bring in a contribution and set up a designated fund, you have to have a policy that you follow and you hold those checks out. Notifying the person, I can't deposit it because we don't have a designated fund, you wouldn't get credit. Giving them the option, well, I can hold it, you can hold it, we can get the fund set up, or you can have your check back and, and donate it to the church in general and make a suggestion to the building grounds or something but legally you can't tell us to do it and I can't give you credit if I decided to say yeah I think it was a good idea I want to do it so I couldn't put it on your contribution statement and that's even with Bibles if you have donors who if you have a designated fund well we do not have a designated fund they have to they have to get permission now if they want to buy the Bibles and get a letter from the church that says thank you for donating 20 Bibles that's one option to go the other route, but they, yeah, they can't dictate to the church. I want you to buy Bibles. They have to get permission by the church setting up the designated fund. Now you could have a mission and ministry designated fund, and they could donate and say suggestion for Bibles, but you, they can't tell you to buy Bibles. So if they put on the designated fund missions and ministry or evangelism, if you have a designated fund. They could put a sticky note or they could tell somebody, hey, I'm giving this because I want Bibles for the, for us to hand out at this event. But legally, no. They can't just dictate and say, if there's nothing to put it in, they just put Bibles in the memo, you need to hold it out and talk to them about it. It's for their benefit, too, because they're not supposed to get credit. It happens at every church. Don't worry. Um, so literally every church, there's somebody writes a check and they'll put something in the memo. And, and truthfully, I don't suggest that Especially if it's somebody that's used to getting away with it. Now, if you're going to change the practice, you need to go back and sit down with them, like a, a deacon or a, a pastor, and lovingly explain to them, we've been doing it the wrong way. I wasn't supposed to include it on your contribution statement, so I can't put it on your contribution statement to do it this way. And so, if you want to buy the Bibles, it would be better for you to buy them. Or, in the same breath, the, the, the uh, water cooler fund. Hey, there may be 10 people in this class that says, oh, Tony's got enough money. He's buying the water cooler. We want it. The church wants it. But if there's no fund, I can't get credit. So legally, we're doing them a favor to prepare them for that, but we're also not creating a, a legal contract for the church to do something that we may not agree to do. And we may not agree to buy a, a water cooler for this room. They may say, well, there's a reason there's not a water cooler. The debtor, you know, what, I don't know. Maybe it could fall through the floor because it's too heavy. I don't know. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? There may be some general call. If there's a reason why we do things with our facilities, and there's a reason why the body makes those decisions. The body has to come up with that decision, not that individual. Uh, we ensure the counter sign and date the counting documentation sheet. So you generally have four to six people, two or more, are counting, not related, and then they write a document that says this is what was given, check number, name, and amount, or cash, envelope, better number. They have to save the envelope, envelopes for up to three years. They do not have to save the checks if they got the check number. However, if 
they're not going to do the actual documentation and they're trying to hurry on Sundays because of that, they just need to write check number, name, and amount, then you, if they didn't want to do it that way, they would just write all the check amounts. Then officially, they would need to make copies so the, the treasurer could get the name and who to uh, allocate it to on their contribution statement. So it's really up to y'all. But what I tell churches too, if you're going to copy checks, you have a, another responsibility and you need to destroy those copies immediately. So once it's documented, you don't need it anymore. In the same breath, if you have a scanner, if you're a big enough church and you scan in because you have so many checks and you do that the next day, that county committee still should document it so that it matches with what got scanned in at your office. If some churches are big enough and they don't carry their month, their cash, they only carry their cash to the bank, they don't carry their checks. If you're going to do that, then a county committee looks at all the checks so that that matches with what was came in. Uh, so they count, they do two deposit slips, one for the treasurer that has all the information and one for the bank. And it needs to be initialed by both on both slips. Okay, so that verifies that they both agreed to the account. That that account that they took to the bank has been initialed and matches the account that was taken to the treasurer. Okay? Weak or no accounting procedures, what can and will happen, even when there are written policies and procedures concerning collections, weak or no procedures, sometimes churches have procedures and they just don't follow them because they get sloppy or they don't they cut corners because they think it's, well, this is not necessary. She wouldn't or he wouldn't do this, okay? You need to follow your procedures. It's, it's the best because it, if you don't, at least the temptation and at least at that. So we're dangling the carrot. We're dangling, uh, we're helping them by not having those internal controls, okay? We're putting the temptation in front of them because we're giving them the opportunity. So <clears throat> Sunday collections, Collected and placed in a safe for the financial secretary to count and deposit at the bank of money and choosy. First error is that they're not counting it when collected. You need to count it as, as soon as you can. Now, in a really big church, I know they put it in the safe. Two people handle it. They lock it in a bank bag, put it in the safe. Still, that needs to be something that's counted as quickly as possible, and it needs to be handled in a, in a manner that two people unlock it as well as the two people that put it in. Uh, and then deposit it, not deposit it the same day. If you are big enough and you can't deposit it the same day, it needs to be the next day. So the deposits and counting need to happen the same day if possible. I prefer that the, the church, a small enough church, the counting people count it, agree to it, give one document to the treasurer, one takes it to the bank, puts it in the night drop. I wouldn't even save it at home. But, but in a bigger church that may have a big specialty safe and all the other stuff i understand there's you can say but best practice is to get it off your premises and in the bank's possession so that you don't have the chance of losing any of the money like i said uh miss and i'm going to use a name miss betty that picked up the the offering like i talked about in my home church and she puts it in her her uh bank bag and takes it home if if something happens and it spills in the car maybe the zipper that gives way it falls out or maybe she sets it on top of the car and forgets and drives off. I mean, she doesn't do anything purposefully to lose the money, but she could lose the money. We need to do it and get it out of our possession and, and on the way. And a, a zip bag is okay. I like the lock bags. I like the zipper bags. Even you can get those that seal um, 
from banks or banks america or something i forgot what the thing is but there's a, a bank thing that sells the things and and on the front there's a place to write the total so you you've got the total in it but you've also got the deposits that inserted with the money and then you, you uh, actually seal it and the bank has to cut it open it's just like a plastic baggie or something um, so do something like that so that it gets off the premises it gets counted immediately uh, a, a lot of times people talk about uh, well nobody would take the money okay somebody wouldn't steal money from the church but honestly the fraud triangle proves that there are there are times and there are ways of people that we never dreamed would have like the grandmother in Tennessee or, or come to find out now that she was actually more deviant than we thought she taught her daughter how to do it but the fraud triangle tells us that it, the more of this is allowed pressure opportunity rationalization the bigger the the bigger the triangle gets, the more likely the fraud's going to happen. And so, if we can, if we can look at this, the pressure, financial or emotional force, we can't control what's going on in people's lives. We can't control that at all. So, I mean, that could grow. We don't know what's going on in their lives. Rationalization. We would hope that if they were part of the church and the preaching and, and the sharing, that their personal justification and dishonest actions would be less likely but we can't control that either the only thing we can control is the opportunity by having some internal controls and having a plan we can we can reduce the chance of somebody thinking they can get away with it if they don't think they can get away with it they're less likely to let one of these pressures tempt them into doing something they wouldn't do and you can find this all over the internet this is just one sample of the fraud triangle I used to do one in an old presentation where I called that temptation. I mean, we literally, opportunity is putting, presenting temptation for them. We are putting them in a place where because of that opportunity, now they think they can get away with it. The temptation gets, it's, it's, it's uh, akin to sin, you know, we're, we're acting, well it is a sin, but I'm saying it's akin to how we look at our whole life. If, if we don't think about that we can get away with it, then we won't try it. We won't do it. Um, so people aren't, you know, you might get mad enough to shoot somebody or something, but you're not going to shoot them if you don't think you're going to get away with it. So people that are, that are having these pressures or these rationalizations, if we narrow that down in that scope, then the fraud triangle has a, a weird shape. They're not going to take the chance. They're not going to do something that they shouldn't do. Um, so, in saying that, we've got to have some internal controls. Uh, look at this example. On Wednesday night supper, Sunday morning breakfast, whatever it is, you receive funds in the basket to help paying the cost of the meal. Collection is $75. The cost of purchasing the supplies was $25. How do you handle? There's two options. So, look at those and tell me what you think. Number two, number two. Correct. Yeah, I mean, the... Uh, they need to be deposited intact and whole like I said at the very beginning you don't need to take out the payment in advance even if you have receipts for it the pay the be reimbursed or something it's better and you know, we got all cash it makes no sense we should just be able to switch it out no we need to do the deposit we need to do the right thing so we have all the accounting uh, tracking so if it's ever questioned we've got record of everything that happened uh, I was helping a church and and 
and I won't name which ministry area it was, but uh, the person brought the money in and said, well, I took this out because that was the cost of the meal, and, and it never balanced. It literally never balanced. They always slid it under the door, and it never balanced. And come to find out, it was the, the, um, the lady was taking a little bit each time to give some money to some of the volunteers for gas. And she's like, well, it should balance. I said, no, it's not balancing. No, it's not balancing. And she, she just, well, I gave them, because they had to go buy the stuff, I gave them $5 for gas. What? <laughs> so anyway, the, the treasurer was sitting there just befuddled why every so often it would be $10, sometimes it would be $5. Well, if, she, if it was a big night and she had to bring somebody else, she gave that person $5. You don't even think to talk, talk that over. But secondly, if you make your policy this way, that won't happen. If you don't turn in all the receipts, you don't get reimbursed. You don't get, and if you can't follow the procedures, you're not in that position. Um, sometimes, like on a Wednesday night supper, sometimes we're paying the person to do it. So you would just have to look for somebody else to do it or something. Because they need to follow this guideline just like any other ministry. If it was WMU doing it or if it was... Um, brotherhood or something else and there's one church that the seniors go and do building things to help people with their uh, ramps or whatever if they're supposed to bring in the receipts and other stuff get just because they all pitched in and put some money in that's not the way to do it take the money up bring it in deposit bring in the receipts and we take care of it so are these best practices documented in that book or somewhere? very vaguely but if you want the PowerPoints, if you email me, I'll send them to you. Now, posting contributions inside the software, what do you think is the best practice or standard for that? That day. <laughs> it's, it's best to do it within three business days. Now, it, that day is good practice, but if you're a big enough church, I can understand it taking a day or two. Weekly is okay, but really the best practice is to get them in within the same day or the, or the next day. So I, I give that three-day window because of, you know, for whatever reason there might be a, a, a situation. But generally, uh, some of our churches, and I hate to say it, but they'll bi-weekly or monthly, they'll go in and put all their uh, contributions in. And they're like, no, 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 you need to get that documented and get it in the software in case something, what's, well, what if something happens to you and you're not there to do it and somebody doesn't find the records or know the records are there? you haven't documented it for that but secondly it's, it's the best practice to get it all documented in a timely fashion everything counted and in the bank at the same day if not uh, the same day documenting it within three days now if you go back and just do these little things accounting team and other stuff you're going to hear somebody say we don't have a problem don't need to ask questions that wouldn't be good for the church Generally, when, people, when you try to make change, it doesn't matter whether it's financial policy change or whether it's change to how we do the children's ministry and having volunteers getting approved. Uh, you know, I had my Aunt Bunny who was, had worked with children forever and the church start, finally implemented a child protection plan. And so she was going to have to do a background check. And she's 90 years old. And she's like, I've never done this. They're trying to say, I, I'm like, I wouldn't do anything to the kids. And I said, I know, Bunny, but you got to understand. we got to do it for all. It's, it's sometimes change. So some people aren't going to change just because they're not good at change. 
some people are not going to change things because they just honestly like to be yeah, contrary, <laughs> confrontational or whatever. And then you're going to have the people that have got a plan that's going to do something. That's why you need to know, just because you don't want to or just because you'd like to make an argument because one person says, I don't want everybody knowing what I give. I don't want the county team. That committee should be chosen or the people on the county team should be chosen in a manner that's people that would be up upstanding, that you would trust to know those things and would trust them not to talk about other people's things. But I, I actually have seen uh, on most of the county committees, when, in a bigger church especially, they're going through so fast, they don't even, they wouldn't, they couldn't tell you who the biggest giver is in the church, even if that person was significantly more than most of the church. So they had, if Truett Cathy was, and so he's passed off, if Truett Cathy was in their church and he tithed, knowing that he gives way more than everybody else, they might not even notice because they're so busy just getting the documentation, getting it in timely on a daily basis, you know, right that day, they don't pay attention to that. And so, or they, they have in, internally practiced that I shouldn't be talking. It's, it's kind of like a deacon. You bring a deacon on, the deacons are not supposed to go out and tell everybody what the deacon meeting was about. Or if you're elders, same thing. You don't go out and talk about what the elder meeting was about. If there's something going on in the church, that body that's preparing something, they don't go out and, and start spreading the, the the mess or the documentation, you know, the, the uh, negative comments that are going on in the church. They go out and try to handle that or work with the people individually, Matthew 18 principles, one-on-one, -on -one and so forth. So they go to the brother or the sister. But you'll, you'll meet this as soon as you go back and try to say we need to do this. Now, legally, are you required to have four to six people on the county committee? No. I, and I know in some churches there's some difficulty. If you have questions about those kind of things, if you'll let me know, I'll be glad to try to help your team figure out the best practice or the best way to do it. Some churches, the financial secretary and, and somebody yesterday uh, asked me, she said, well, you know, um, the financial secretary is on the counting team. Shouldn't, is that okay? And I'm like, no, not really. Now, is it legal? Yeah, it's okay legally. There's no, there's no prohibition for that county, that treasurer to be on there, the financial secretary, but it's not a good practice. And it's for her purpose, her, or his or her purpose as well, because if they're doing the counting and writing the checks, people can make false accusations as well, especially if they wanted that job. Uh, so, same with the treasurer for the financial secretary. Yeah, same thing. So can you sort of like, just for somebody that's, on all this, what is the treasurer supposed to do? What is the financial secretary supposed to do? What is the county team supposed to do? Because Actually, I feel like I'm doing it all. Yeah, and you, should, you shouldn't be. I have in this in this book, if, you, if you'll if you email me and get this booklet, there's actually, uh, I'm going to pull it up and show it to you. Uh, there's actually, depending on the size of the church, a basic and expanded and elaborate treasurer, county team, finance committee roles to try to give, and they're just basic, so it's not a requirement and it's not going to fit, every size doesn't fit every church, so it might be a hybrid for y'all because of the size of the church, I don't know, but uh, we purposefully don't do, now I've got a treasurer's roll document that says you shouldn't be counting, you know, it says in the, on our website there's a document about what's the treasurer's roll. Uh, I don't specifically want to specifically just go over trader because I was told don't make it specific to a position, so make it a financial training. But um, 
on it's, it's, uh, on this book is 82. Like I said, this is 2018. We don't have any in print for 19. So the one I send you will be the 19 book. So it's this book, I have an electronic version that I can email you if you will email me. We do not provide this in, in hard copy anymore. And not in that one? No, we have to buy it. It's not ours. They took, I help write it and I help send in stuff. And actually Keith Hamilton's, I mean, they used something that he wrote specifically. It's still documented in here that Keith provided it. So, I mean, right now, though, it was understood everybody that goes on, you know, in with the stewardship development, when you provide or answer questions for the team writing, that this this is the Stewardship Development Association of Southern Baptist Churches. It's not, but they took a document Keith had produced and just copied it. So, um, if you want to buy a hard copy, I want a 19. Okay, if you need a paper copy, I will give you their website. So if you email me and you say, I want a hard copy also, or I'd like a hard copy, I'll tell you how you can purchase one. I, I generally would tell you, because I was buying them in bulk for $16, $15, a book, and it's only 80 so pages, I would generally tell you, you might want to just take the electronic version and print it. And I'm sorry, but they spend a lot on this hard colored hard and there's a lot of money spent on this and so I understand why they charge for it and I'm just not sure since it changes I mean in 20 there was going to be some things that might change it might be better to just get the electronic version and print the pages as you need them or print the whole thing you print 80 pages and it's probably a little cheaper than I think it's I'm, I'm don't quote me on this I think it's like $28 if you don't buy them at all it's, it's over 20 so your call. I, if you're gonna if you're gonna buy a big book that you want the book instead of if you're not electronic, there's another book, the Church and Clergy Tax Guide by Hammer. I used to I used to provide that. Uh, it was seventy five dollars for the book. They now made it if you buy both you can get seventy five electronic version and the book. But at this point, you know, I, it makes it very difficult for me to put a charge on some of this. Some churches say I can't come to this year event because it's seventy five dollars. I'm charging you for a book I had to purchase, but I understand. Then I don't want them not showing up because that's that's the other thing. I've got small churches that or, or church plans and stuff that just don't show up, and then they're in trouble and they call me and they're this far over their head and it was too late. I, I can help you, but you're going to have to you're going to it's going to cost you because I'm going to have to send you to somebody to help. So um, let me just encourage you if you uh, if you if you want to purchase it, just put on there. I want to purchase a hard copy of what's the website. They will sell you one. Or they used to sell you one. Uh, I don't know if they're, if they're quitting because they didn't, they didn't get my big order, and I know in another state they did the same thing. They quit using the, the hard copy. And so I don't know. They had to have a big enough run to make it worth printing them, so they may have quit printing them. Because it's all a volunteer. Everybody that's a member of the SBA, uh, SDA, Stewardship Development Association, is in this kind of role. And, and so everything we contribute is is volunteer. We don't get paid to do anything. So the only thing that's costing them would be then printing them. I mean, if they print them and then have to eat them, they don't have any money coming in to make up for it. So um, that said, if you, any of those things, if you email me for those resources, you say, what, who did you say? Hammer is H-A-M-M-A-R, not E-R. But the Church and Clergy Tax Guide comes out every year as well. And, and
and it has court cases so that you can understand you know why this precedence has been set and why we're doing it this way or why I'm telling you to do it this way um, so those two resources are bigger and better and I don't try to recreate so everything I write I try to make it more about more simplistic for our churches so that people will use it off my website it follows the same basis of what he has but it's not going to be the detail that they have so for oversight and accountability internal controls the finance committee and the treasurer's responsibility educate yourselves and rules on on those things but in general once the money is restricted that's pretty much it is if, if you've agreed to the contract of what was on their uh, check you've got a legal contract if you set up the designated fund and you say you're going to do this unless you wrote a way to close it in the future in advance of receiving money then you it, it's very difficult there is a possibility and it talks about that there's a possibility if it's serious enough to necessitate repurposing but the only way you're going to do that is through an attorney's office i cannot tell you how long <coughs> to hold that money before you can actually repurpose it or reaccess it you need to have and I've heard the attorney terms abandoned fund or abandoned project and all these other things but officially that's not I, I if you got called on me if somebody said oh I gave that money for this and y'all better use it for that or I'm going to take you to court I can't tell you what's going to stand up in court I'm not an attorney so he's going to tell you what he could help you defend and what steps to make sure you don't have to defend it now most of the time you can get that advice from an attorney uh, about repurposing a designated fund for a reasonable or less less than any money free kind of thing but in some cases if you've got a very complicated situation and it's a lot of money he may want you to come in and he, he may want you to pay a certain amount and he may want you to pay to have advertising uh, in the paper or something like that it's, uh, I've heard others say they needed to get the clerk I mean short court decision out of it just to get the church to be uh, absolved of any legal action can be had so that it's like filing bankruptcy so they have to publish it that the church is now uh, getting I have not known of a church has done that but I used to read some things about some churches that said that's what they had to do or that, that, but the truth is um, if you need to repurpose it you need to have that written in in advance or you have to go to an attorney I can't tell you yes that's been long enough since you got any money in or yes that's been long enough since y'all decided not to have a um, uh, family life center now we can't well you didn't get the land or, or uh, we didn't get the land for uh, uh, burial or things so we can't we couldn't open our own uh, cemetery or whatever you know and you've raised twenty or thirty thousand dollars would you get the land I can't tell you that yes that that's been long enough that's not my that's a legal option the only thing yeah yesterday when I was talking about designated funds I was trying to emphasize if you're going to set up a designated fund make sure there's a way to close it if you have already set one up and there's not a way to close it stop taking money into that way rewrite the fund so if you have building funds that don't have a way to close it and, and there's actually in that little green and white book there's a, a thing that tells you there's a way to put it in their policy so that people understand in advance if at any time in the future the church decides to close this fund it will go to the by vote of the church it will go to the general fund of the church if people know in advance if it's in the policy in advance that they gave money then you could close it but if it's not in advance you can't so i say if you don't have it written in 
close all those old policies, rewrite the ones that are necessary. And I'm not a big proponent of a lot of designated funds, but if you have to rewrite one, make sure they all say the church can close it in the future by vote of the church. Use these dollars first so that the new fund becomes the only fund. So they can't give the old way, they can only give this way. And I think that piece is huge. I, I ran into this in our church uh, my first year as treasurer. Then over backwards not to create a new designated fund. Mm -hmm. um, it, can, it can splinter your budget. People start giving around the budget, or they start pick, picking their pet ministry they think is the most important. That their tithe. And that's their tithe. They'll start giving their tithe around it. I like to tell churches on designated funds, you can't have it where they vote to move it over. If you voted it in as a church body because of overage in your general fund, you can vote it back out. There's no, You don't have to have these same policies because people didn't give it directly in. That wasn't a contract. That was the body moving it, moving it back. Yes, ma'am? We're a very small church. What do you do about, like, the lobby members and Annie Armstrong? When we take those up and put them in their little lobby and envelopes, then when it gets to treasurer, I just say, okay, designated for lobby members. And I just keep it in a separate place in my accounting till we send it in to... And that should be like a designated fund for missions and ministries that y'all take special collection for? We need for? to set that up each time, or... I, well, you wouldn't have to set it up. It would be uh, what I what I encourage, and, and if you uh, have the green and white book, you can look. But there's multiple funds listed on six, seven, yeah. three, three, four, five, six, seven. I would use like a missions fund, and so at any time the, the it, yeah at any time in the future that the, uh, the church what was it the fund can run. the missions committee may consider recommendations. Oh, this is not the right one. Maybe it's ministry fund. Anyway, I would say you have a designated fund that says that that by you know at any time for a certain other missions or ministries as deemed by the deacons or the finance team, whatever, you can collect for a specified period that will be passed over to that other ministry. So like if Gideon's coming in, you can take up a love offering for them. If body moon for two months you want to take it up or if you want to take it up for two weeks you can say the committee approved it this is when we're collecting it and then you can send it straight out okay, but those offerings do not go to your statement that you give to the individual they not as long as it's to another 501c3 yes they do as long as it's to another 501c3 but um you know, if it's to an individual, there's a few specifications you can't do individual collection unless it's for services rendered or mission trip. So I talked about that yesterday, but if you if you uh, don't meet the criteria, yes, it wouldn't go on there. So if you took up a special offering, I tell you, don't do it. No, don't do it. <laughs> because we're not supposed to pass through. But if you've accidentally done it, no, it shouldn't have been on the contribution statement. Okay. Um, Finance committee and the treasurer's responsibility also is monthly or is to look at the bank statement and the reconciliation. If the treasurer or the finance committee is doing it, then the other person or the other group should review it. So if you're doing a bank reconciliation as the treasurer, somebody else ought to approve your bank reconciliation because you wrote all the checks. And it's for your protection and it's for that protection of that asset for the church. Now, 
when you say approve it, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to scrutinize every invoice on it. They need to see, because if, if the utility bill's the same in June, July, and August or in that range, that's okay. But if something came in, uh, Jeff's painting, and, and that person doesn't know, they, they could say, well, wait a minute, I saw this Jeff's painting, and I don't remember approving that check, or you know, maybe somebody that comes in and signs on checks is different than you then that you could go back and look at the invoice but it also gives you that check and balance because I don't know how many of you know this but you can go out on the internet and there's plenty of places that will help you create fake invoices and that's what has happened in one of the churches that I was talking about that I've sent names names I sent them names of people to help them but I said that's that doesn't look like a legitimate invoice well nobody can figure it out I said, well that's probably because it was created yeah, you can literally fake it. And so if it doesn't make sense and you didn't sign off on the check, okay, you heard me say that. The regular signature person didn't sign off, you can still get checks through. The bank does not sit there and eye those things. If you're supposed to have two signatures, they don't check that. That's an internal policy that you have to check, okay? So bank statement review, ensuring that all the deposits are posted on computerized and their own computerized software timely and accurately. And then a monthly review of contributions. Somebody else besides the person that puts it in ought to go in and see, is this matching up? And so the, the checks we receive and are they on these many documents and statements? So did we did we follow it, it doesn't have to be individually look at every person's contribution statement. It looks at how many are there, how many went in, how many came out. Did it match up with what was on them? Just a, a cursory review. Now, I'm going to recommend all the time that churches get uh, a financial audit or an external exam. So you'll hear me say that. It's for your protection, the treasurer's protection, and that. If something's changed, it's, it protects the church, but if something's changed and the treasurer's doing it wrong, you still can get in trouble. So you need to learn and know what's, what's changed, and that auditor can tell you when I say auditor, it could be somebody just doing a review, but they can tell you, hey, this changed and you're doing it this way, this is not right anymore. Okay? So they give you an objective eye looking at the records to give you objective suggestions to take care of that. Now I don't I don't promote churches getting audits every year. This may not be good stewardship, especially in the case of a small church, like you said. But you can do a review. You, I've, I've got a couple of uh, CPA firms that say uh, we'll do a three-part review on three parts of the church's stuff this year and three parts next year. And it's in a pretty big church that used to pay 15000 a year for an audit. Now they get 5000 a year for they look at a different part every year. So over three years they're spending what they used to spend in one year. And they were getting an audit every year, so why not? do this and check it in sections by that CPA firm. So there are ways to go around that. What can the church do though? I'm going to run out of time and I really wanted to share with you a little bit about the tax changes. Separate duties, establish clear organizational structure. So like I said, this, this document will be available to you. There's also some stuff in uh, Hammer's book. There's also on my website, I think, what the treasurer's role is. And then also on this document, handling the church's money, it talks about that the, um, the church treasurer should not be on the county committee in the county part. It talks about uh, your constitution and bylaws and financial policy should document who's got 
responsibility and authorization for spending. Financial Treasurer Secretary can record the information for this stuff, so since they're recording, they shouldn't be counting. Uh, so there's there's places where you can put this whole thing together, but you need to have a, a structure that somebody can go to and say, this is what this person or this group does. And it, like I said, it, it's got a basic and expanded and, and, an ex, and an elaborate, depending on how big your church is. And then again, you could be this for that, and then take parts of this over here, and, and it could be in any shape, form, or fashion because each church is autonomous and you're different in size structure. So um, definitely look at those things and come up with a structure so everybody has an idea of what their role is and that separation of duties is known what their, their, their part of that duty is, okay? Uh, enlist qualified personnel or provide training. Um, I had a, and, and I won't even I won't bring it up, but there's, I mean, there's what church or anybody, but somebody called me and, and they said, well, I'm not a financial person, but I'm financial secretary. It got added onto my role when the other person left. You either need to get the person some training because they're calling me and they literally don't know how to use their software, much less do they do, they just admitted to me that they don't really do financial stuff. So get them some training. Uh, document the accounting procedures. What is, what's supposed to happen from here, here, and here? And it doesn't really need to be a book. It doesn't need to be 80 pages, okay? I'm not, it can be like this, or it can be a flow chart or something. It can fit on a page easily. And then monitor your financial transactions. Uh, outside reserve, outside uh, reviews. If you want to do an audit, if you're big enough, and, and, and church, I tell, I tell the church that said they've gone to that every, you know, uh, three, they look at three things a year um, instead of looking at everything in one year. So you could do that, but if you're big enough, I, I think every seventh or tenth year you ought to go ahead and pay for the full audit. And I told them that. And so, you know, that's something you need to think about. What is What makes sense for us? If we're small enough and we can't afford to do $5,000 a year, then we can work with a sister church that's our size in a neighboring county or something and do an audit of each other. Maybe they've come to this conference and you haven't, or maybe you come to this conference and you know they haven't, and you're both going to be able to impart something on each other. Or something's going to come up, y'all email me, and you can help each other out. So you don't have to pay. I've got a checklist on my website for doing an internal audit. You can use that. So you don't have to pay to do it, but you need to do something because it's for your protection. And then keep up your guard. Unfortunately, we have to do that. I cannot tell you how many times I've... I've been, I went home and just literally felt the weight of the world about how bad the you know, how bad depravity is if we've got a treasurer who's been trusted for years, financial secretary, whatever it is, and they've embezzled money. But frankly, what really broke my heart this year is that there was a pastor and a treasurer, not related, in cahoots. And uh, that just, it just blows me away. So it can happen with anybody. Temptation, as I showed you on the fraud triangle, can happen. Opportunity happens. The need that they rationalize or they don't get paid enough, maybe they're rationalizing that way. Whatever it is, provided the opportunity, they had the opportunity was provided, so they thought they could get away with it. So we, even though Aunt Bunny would never take a dime, Aunt Bunny's granddaughter has never needed surgery like the lady up in Tennessee. Uh, or so forth. 
So is there any questions before I go over the tax law update? I'm just going to go, it's a five minute summary of the tax law. So this, this uh, tax reform in 18 and 19 that's actually come into place, there's been a little bit that implemented the second year, so that's why I call it 18, but it really all went in in 18 except for one or two things. The standard deduction increase, the personal exemptions were eliminated and the brackets were adjusted. It was supposed to simplify your taxes, right? Okay. I mean, it kind of did. It made it shorter on the form, so that made you think it was more simplified. Uh, they increased the child tax credit. So if you have children under 17, you got 2000 instead of 1000 as a child tax credit. Now, also, they expanded it in that if you have somebody in full-time students, 17 to 24, and they're still your dependent, you get a $500 child tax credit. So there's an expansion there. Um, itemized deductions were cut. Uh, because of the standard deduction increasing up at the top, 24000 for Mary Fine jointly, the cuts in, this, in the itemized deduction really hurt because a lot of people do not itemize anymore. Uh, I mentioned it yesterday. It was, they said about 5% of America could itemize. Most of the tax repairs I talked to is much less than 5%. So most people aren't able to itemize because they don't reach that threshold. The state and local tax deduction was reduced to $10,000. Now, it's not a big deal here in Georgia because we don't have quite the same tax structure that New York and California have. But and there's people up there screaming that that killed them because their tax bills are way over $10,000. Um, medical deductions must exceed 10% of AGI. It used to be 7.5%. And then the miscellaneous deductions were taken off altogether. So you take those away, you increase the standard deduction, that makes a big deal. A lot of people went away not able to itemize. And some people saw that as, oh, I didn't get to count my contributions. Well, yeah, you got to count them. They were counted in heaven, okay? Remember? <laughs> or storing up in heaven. We're not storing up, okay? But um, truthfully, it has had an effect. I told people it would. I said... It worries me because there are people that already have a heart issue not giving 10%. If they're not getting the credit on their tax return, they may then in turn find another reason not to, not to give. And that might be the things that we didn't do in the past, such as buy Susie the, the, the best track shoes or buy Johnny the, the golf clubs or whatever. Now they do that and miss a, miss a payment of, of what they normally would give at 3%. Now they're at zero. So they might miss a month or two. Now their average goes down to 2% for the year. I, I, I think um, everybody thought, well, because the economy's doing well, people will still give. Some churches are doing fairly well, but I think it's more resurgent of more people coming rather than it is um, people giving more. Um, so the home equity interest is ineligible to be treated as part of the mortgage. Okay, so now that went away, which means another reason why people couldn't itemize. Uh, the Affordable Care Act penalty was removed. So in the past, you got penalized. Remember, you do your tax return. If you had no no insurance, you had to pay six hundred something dollars per person not having insurance. It was a penalty or a tax, whatever you want to call it. I don't I don't really, I don't want to get into politics of it. It's gone. There's no penalty, and they still require you to fill out the document saying that you have insurance. But they're not going to do anything about it because they removed the penalty. Uh, moving expenses paid by the church and reimbursed by the church is taxable income doesn't matter that you pay it directly doesn't matter if you get a reimbursement and get the receipt everybody that, that moves and gets reimbursed by an employer not just the church every employer 
must count it as taxable income unless it's military. The new tax law. So what, how do we, what do we do as a church? Do we give them, do we add that on to? Put it in box one on his W-2. Put it in box, box one, just like salary. Oh. Yeah, it's, there's no tax break for, in, for moving people anymore. Only if they're military. It was taken out with a new tax law. And then finally, if you don't have an accountable reimbursement plan, your staff will pay extra on taxes. I've tried to preach it for years, but this, the new tax law took the miscellaneous section out, and literally I've had six or so pastors call me this year with higher tax bills. And even more pastors have called me where their tax preparer said, oh wait, you were doing your taxes wrong. You can't do it on a Schedule C. If they're your pastor, they're supposed to get a W-2. W-2s don't go on Schedule C. Two or three pastors this year were audited about this. So it's serious. You've got to, if they're going to provide benefits, if they're your employee, they need to be on a W-2. And so secondly, for their mileage and cell phone and books, you need to reimburse it. They need to turn in receipts or turn in a, a statement of mileage and say, uh, on Monday I did visitation at the, at the nursing home so many miles. They can't put who they visit because of the pastor privilege of communication, but they have to do reimbursements because there is no place to deduct it. If they deduct it wrongly, if they get a tax preparer that doesn't understand or does it wrong, and they get audited, they're the ones paying the penalty. The tax preparer could lose their license eventually if there's enough mistakes, but if if it comes back, it's, it's on that pastor to pay the tax, and he has to pay interest, and has, you know, so it's on him. Uh, I had two that got audited in 18 this year. I mean, that's how quick they're getting, they're catching that, hey, this is not right, ministers are doing this wrong, and this is in North Georgia only. These are just people that actually literally showed me their stuff. So I don't know how many it's really affected, but doing something on a 1099 that should have been on a W-2 is on the employer. And if that comes back, if you're doing it the wrong way, then you're the one in trouble as the employer. So you get, that's the other thing. The IRS has said there's a lot of companies treating people as contractors, and if they're getting 1099s and they shouldn't be, we're gonna start locking down on that. So a lot of employers are gonna start getting in trouble. So if your pastor is not an interim, he should get a W-2 unless he's 100% housing. So if you only pay him enough that it just covers his housing allowance, then he wouldn't have to get a W-2. He'd just get a letter that says housing allowance of this amount. And he takes that to his, to his tax preparer. And you still keep a copy of it like it was a W-2, but you don't have to do a W-2. If the minister of music is ordained or licensed, and if the church agrees that his role matches up with a minister, there's a five questions on uh, on one of the documents on my website that says it's a Wingo and Night test. If you go, if you look it up on Google, but uh, are they ordained or licensed? That must be yes. Then two of the other four must be yes, which is they perform the sacraments or baptism and, and Lord's Supper, or they lead worship, or they're a leader in the church or the denomination, or they're seen as supervising in the church or denomination. Okay, so if you go through that Wingo and Knight test, if they're not licensed or ordained or, or uh, commissioned, then they're not able to be, even if they met all four of the other. So 
commission means kind of like what they do for missionaries and other stuff. They commission them, and that's they're still able to be treated as a minister. But if they don't do the other things, if if the church says that role is not, it's up to the church. So if it came back and said we allowed him to have a housing, you would have to sign off that yes, we agree he's eligible based on this this question. If they ask, and again, most of the time a minister has been ordained from years ago at another. Uh, church, so the ordination, you, you may not have a copy and wasn't ordained at your church, but if he comes in and says he's ordained or licensed and, and you have documentation or agreement from that previous church, you don't have to have his order, you don't have to have an ordination every time he comes to a church. Okay, and then if all he gets is the housing, you don't, he doesn't get a W 2 or anything, he just gets a letter at yeah. the end of the year. And it saves you from doing 941s and other stuff. Now, if you're doing that on letter and then you have somebody else that does get a salary and housing so that person would get a letter and a w-2 so don't put their housing on the w-2 be consistent wherever you put housing so if you have somebody that's 100 percent you're doing letters then all are doing letters so at georgia baptist we have some quote unquote contract retired people that come back and help things and, and so they only get paid twelve thousand a year there's 100 percent housing and since they are, we don't get it on our W-2 housing. We get, we get told this is this was the housing you requested and was approved, and that's it. Okay, so the letter. Get a salary and housing. No, if 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 they go, if you if you have two ways, you got two ministers. Yeah. One's 100 percent. He's getting a letter. Then this guy's getting a letter plus a W-2, but on his W-2, there's no housing, it's on the letter. So always do housing the same way for everybody. If you're putting it on the W-2, then this guy that has no salary, he gets a blank W-2 with just housing. So if you're gonna do it all on W-2s, you don't have to do letters. But if you've got one minister and all you have to do is a letter, that's perfect, because then you don't have to do 941s, W-2s, G-7s, you don't have anything to do, because that's your only employee then 100% housing is a blessing because you don't have to do any payroll report. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Is there a problem with doing a W-9 on a part-time director or major tool or something like that that is only salary no Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> yes. Unless he's an interim, he should get a W-2. He's a part-time employee. He gets a part-time. Right, he gets a part-time W-2. 1099s are for contractors and interims, and interims are, are temporary, 18 months or less. Is it in the hammer guide that's got that list to determine if somebody's employee or not? Yeah, there's a 20 question. It's on our website too. There's a question and answer about determining if employee or not. That's exactly what that's exactly what the IRS pointed out. That the, the, the businesses they've already went after about doing that, saying that well they're one year contracts, so they're contractors. No, if they're not in the business of offering that service elsewhere, they're not doing the same thing for other people and getting the ten ninety nine, so they're not then you're supposed to be right if he has a landscape business and he does landscape everywhere yeah he'd be a 1099 not
Should the housing allowance be indicated anywhere on the W-2? Just say 50-50, it's a 50-50 day. It's optional. of his um, income is housing allowance and the other part is his salary. It's optional. You can either put it on box 14, so you have box one is salary, box 14 is housing, or you put salary on box one and you'd give him a letter for housing. It really depends on yeah. just doing it the same for all your ministries. It was determined that it was appealing to the IRS that everybody there could not interpret what we were doing and it cost an issue years ago. It has to do a lot with right, the softwares that churches, I mean the tax preparers were doing. So I mean it, it again it, it's optional. They didn't change the rule for how the church could report it, but uh, if, if the, well, let's just say I've got ministers that call me and for TurboTax, if they don't put it in box 14 and the church gives them a letter, they have a hard time getting it fixed in their TurboTax. But then I've got ministers that take it to a, a, a tax preparation service and if it's in box 14, they have trouble with their software. It depends on the software as to which ones. That's what I'm saying. Even the softwares don't agree with which ones preferred, but the IRS says it's optional. So it can either be in box 14 or it can either be in a letter. It's really up to the employer or the church to decide. Okay, let me pray you out of here. I, I think I did well because I was answering questions. Like that. <laughs> so let me pray. I think y'all are with you to go get lunch. So, dear Lord, thank you for those who have sacrificed their Saturday to come out and learn uh, how to take care of the resources that are given to your kingdom. Bless them, bless their churches, dear Lord, and bless this food. Pray in your holy name. Amen.